If you're a fan of big ideas, debate, and politics, check out our festival partner, Geopolitical Magazine Foreign Policy. A forum for informed debate about global affairs, foreign policy keeps a finger on the pulse of world news and political happenings. Beyond articles that delve behind the headlines via traditional reporting, Foreign Policy has so many other products to offer, ensuring that no matter how you like to engage with eye-opening content, there is a method for you. Check out their free offerings, like Foreign Policy Live, their forum for live journalism, newsletters, and podcasts. And with a subscription, unlock in-depth features and quarterly magazines, including their recently dropped spring edition, All About India. Fans of IAI will love Foreign Policy for more of the mind-expanding, insightful content that they seek. To explore their content, take advantage of an exclusive discount for IAI fans. Subscribe now using promo code LIGHT24 to save 50% and unlock access to everything Foreign Policy has to offer. The Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos, and podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Can the radical elements of religion help us today? And how should we view martyrdom and sacrifice? To help us discuss the role of religion today, we're joined by this week's speaker, Marxist literary critic and public intellectual Terry Eagleton. Eagleton explores the intersection between faith, martyrdom and sacrifice in a post 9-11 age. Sacrifice is really about um, the passage of something of a lowly thing from weakness to power. It's like the word literally means making sacred. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to Terry Eagleton. I wondered if you think that uh, ideas and big thinking are still important today. There are big ideas and small ideas. Ideas come in different shapes and sizes. And, um, I'd, but ideas of some shape or size are what we live by. Without certain implicit ideas, uh, you know, we wouldn't really have a human life. But every now and then, I guess there's a need for sort of big ideas, not least when a society or a civilization is in a kind of crisis. It tends to, re- to need to reach out for what some people call grand narratives, you know, for something bigger. We're in a postmodern culture like our own, if you think around, say, the turn of the century, around 2000, people have pretty much given up on big ideas and grand narratives. They didn't think they were needed. And the whole climate, politically and culturally, was uh, more pragmatic, more modest, yeah. And then, two aircraft slammed into the World Trade Center. And a whole new grand narrative opened up, really the, really the war between the West and a certain kind of Islam, a certain reading of Islam, which is likely to dominate history for the next coming decades, I think. So whether we like it or not, we're sort of in the middle of a grand narrative where a lot of... We're in a situation where... We're in a world where some people believe too much and some people believe too little. The people who believe too much are really kind of fundamentalists of one kind or another, whether they're, uh, you know, uh, Islamic or, or Texan or 
Western fundamentalists, Christian fundamentalists, doesn't matter. Um, in a sense, they believe too much, and, and beliefs of that kind can kill, you know? Um, but there are a lot of other people who you might say believe too little, who are um, pretty agnostic about things, you know? They just get by. They don't really reflect very much on the fundamentals of civilization. And um, I think we're kind of swinging between the one and the other, you know? Um, but whether we like it or not, we're in a period of big ideas, in the sense of a period where we could be ruining our planet, where we could be preparing for nuclear war, you know? Um, all kinds of hideous prospects face us. So we have to think big, I think. For that reason, I don't think smaller ideas are really going to work anymore. Yeah. And where would you place the new atheists? You've worked a lot on uh, oh, criticizing the new atheists. Yes. Uh, Dawkins and Hitchens. People like Dawkins. Yeah, well, all I... Do they think too much or uh, too little? Well, I was saying the other day, uh, talk here that, uh, that hey, that um, all I know about Richard Dawkins is that his wife used to be in Doctor Who. I can't think of anything else about to know about him. Um, I keep forgetting all the rest. No, actually, I do. Um, but, um, well, you see, my objection to people like Dawkins is not to the fact that he's an atheist, uh, but to the fact that, that, like a lot of atheists, he sort of buys his atheism on the cheap. You've actually got to pay for your atheism or your agnosticism. That's to say, you can't just reject a kind of crude caricature of, say, Christianity. Now, I think Dawkins and a lot of other of the new atheists do. They have, a, they have a sort of view of Christianity that no intelligent theologian would accept for a moment, or even theology student, yeah? And so they make it easy for themselves. You know, it's like saying, um, it's like saying, you know, feminism is just about women trying to dominate men, so I'll write it off, you know? Uh, it's a, it's a, straw, a straw man, it's a straw target. Um, just to take one example, Richard Dawkins thinks, like most atheists think, that the doctrine of creation is to do with how the world started. Yeah? And he thinks that's kind of nonsense because he's a scientist, and it's science who tells us how the world started. Well, in fact, the doctrine of creation has nothing to do with how the world started. He doesn't know that, but any reasonably intelligent theologian would tell him that that's not the case. You know. So there's no point in just um, travestying ideas and then just bowling them over. Um, it's a pointless game, and I think that Dawkins and some of, some, some of his colleagues do that. And are they, is that something, is there an account of by, given by a theologian that you would want them to read? Is there, or is it something that you've oh, yes. experienced yourself? No, I think there's a lot, there's a lot they could read. I mean, the problem is that because they think theology is nonsense, they don't read it, okay? Um, uh, so that means that they don't really, in a very basic sense, know what they're talking about when they're talking theology. Um, you know, they're talking about ideas which, let's say, no theologian for a century or so has really taken seriously. Yeah? Um, so yes, they need, I mean, be an atheist by all means, you know, reject the whole lot. It's fine with me, but, but know what you're rejecting and don't just, um, toss ideas aside in that sort of way. Um, uh, the other point about atheism and Christianity, of course, or religion, is that um, 
religion is becoming an increasingly central motivation politically, you know, I think of Islam or the opposite. Op um, one of the problems of the West is that it has sort of ideologically disarmed at just the point where it faces uh, a political enemy in the shape of radical Islam that has some very big and fundamental ideas. Yeah? And so there's a kind of imbalance there. Um, and I think that the new atheist rejection of um, religion as just so much nonsense is actually um, quite dangerous politically because um, it, it underestimates the, the, the living power of religion. Not always a power for good, by any means, yeah? But it's a real phenomenon. You can't just write it off as a, as a lot of nonsense, I think. And what is there to take seriously in theology? In theology? Oh, well, um, the, um, uh, the, 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 uh, the central message of the Christian gospel, I suppose, is that uh, if you love, you'll be killed. That's a very nice, comforting message, isn't it? There's your pie in the sky for you. Yeah, I mean, that's very clear, isn't it? Yeah, that if you love people properly, I don't mean love in the kind of debased, erotic, romantic, sentimental sense. I mean love in the New Testament sense of, you know, feeding the hungry and caring for the dying and welcoming the orphans and the widows. That if you do that, you're going to be a threat to the state. And the state will probably do away with you, yeah. I mean, Jesus warns his comrades with, you know, that's what's going to happen to them if they do the same as him. So there's no loveliness about that message at all. It's a very stark message. And um, I think the new atheism avoids that, um, partly because of its discomfort. Um, uh, you know, it, Christianity says that the world is so warped and so governed by rather dark powers, you know, political powers, that, um, that you can't um, change that, transform it, unless you have a very thoroughgoing transformation of the self and of society. In other words, in that sense, Christianity is too radical, understood properly for a lot of people, a lot of good liberals, middle ground, you know, people who don't really believe that, who don't really think things are that bad. One of the first questions you have to ask somebody, I think, when you're talking about atheism and Christianity is, how bad do you think it is, you see? And a lot of people would say, ah, you know, not that bad, you know, there's a lot of progress, it's true. But I think, um, I think, I think Christian, uh, Christianity believes that things are fundamentally pretty bad. Human history has been a long nightmare of torture and injustice and bloodshed and, you know, and how are you going to change that, see? Um, well, whatever could change, it just has to cut very deep, yeah. Um, and that's really what Christianity is about. You have to um, confront the possibility of death and rebirth. And so do you think that if we took seriously the sort of radical conviction that religion is, it would help us politically today. You've talked about it. Well, put it this way, if, I mean, if, say people actually did live as the gospel teaches, you know, they love one another, they 
helped each other and so on. They, they believed in justice. And uh, then it would transform the world. But I think there's no question that, that if people could live like that, that would be our saving, that would be our salvation. The problem is that, um, you know, only a very small number of people are willing to go through the process of self-dispossession that that would entail. The, you know, the Christian gospel demands a self-dispossession so radical that the image of it really is martyrdom. Christians have to be prepared to be martyrs. And, um, you know, I'm not sure I'm prepared to be a martyr or, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I want to go on writing my books and seeing my children and, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing is, what people like Dawkins don't understand, Christianity is, is um, an impossible demand. It's rather like Freud thinks of the superego. Freud thinks the superego makes impossible demands on us to be good and moral and upright and conscientious and repress our worst desires and so on. Um, for Freud, the superego is a tyrant. Now, I don't think there are some kind of versions of Christianity which model God in that way, see God as a tyrant, yeah? Um, but um, that's too easy, see, because the thing is, quite a lot of people secretly want God to be a tyrant because they want to be punished. And why do they want to be punished? Because they feel guilty, yeah? Um, so they want, um, they want a real God. They want a big, nasty bastard of a God, you know, who's going to wrap them over the knuckles and, you know. And they don't want to kind of, a, a God who's a fellow sufferer, a God who accepts them in all their uh, messiness, you know. That's, so, so in other words, most ideas of God are idolatrous. God is a kind of idol, like a superego, yeah. Um, and it's very hard, therefore, to take the Christian message that God isn't like that at all. You know, that God forgives us and loves us and, you know, so on. Um, so, uh, yeah. So would you argue that we should look at sort of this uh, conviction in martyrdom as a good, or that we've just misunderstood. Yeah. Uh, you've done work on radical sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. Does this link to that? It's very dangerous and bad to seek martyrdom. Yeah, and certainly as far as, uh, just to go back to the Christian gospel, it doesn't look as though Jesus was seeking martyrdom. And in fact, in fact before he's arrested, he's panicking badly in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's sweating blood. Doesn't want to die. A martyr has to be somebody who doesn't want to die. See? Because the people, somebody who wants to die is a suicide. Yeah. Martyrs and suicides look kind of superficially similar, but they're not. The martyr is somebody who gives up what he or she thinks is the most precious thing they have, their lives, for something which is even more precious in their, in their view, you know? Um, unless you really want to live, you can't be a martyr. Your death won't be efficacious, it won't be valuable. Um, it'll be like a suicide. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's a very hard thing because on the one hand, you mustn't seek martyrdom. On the other hand, given the kind of world we've built for ourselves, people who speak out for justice or whatever it is, you know, are putting themselves in the firing line yeah? and, and may become martyrs even though they don't want to be. 
And so where has your work on radical sacrifice taken you? Taken me? Oh, well, uh, partly to... Um, sacrifice is a very un, unsexy concept these days, you know, very unglamorous, you know. People think of it in terms of giving things up. Well, yeah. But traditionally, I'm looking at sort of some of the ancient ideas of sacrifice. Um, uh, sacrifice is really about um, the passage of something of a lowly thing from weakness to power. It's like the word literally means making sacred. And the sacred for a certain societies is very powerful and dangerous. Sacred is dangerous. And to invest something with a dangerous power is to transform it. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what the people who are dangerous are the poor. The poor are dangerous partly because they've got nothing to lose. People who've got nothing to lose are very dangerous. Yeah? Uh, but they're also dangerous because they are, they are the people that Yahweh, that God um, says represents him in the world. And that you will know who God is when you see the poor coming to power. Yeah? Um, so sacrifice is about, not so much about giving things up, but about that transition from weakness to power, I think. I mean, it's pretty fashionable today to dislike the concept of power, you know? And that's because people rather obtusely always think about dominant power. But that's not the only power. The only way you can oppose an oppressive power is by other powers, emancipatory powers, you know? Um, so, um, I, I mean, you know, power is an excellent thing, you know? Personally, I can't get enough of it. Excellent, depending on who has it, for what purposes, how they use it, you know. You can't get away from power, but you can try and use power to undo various forms of oppression and exploitation. You need power for that, you know. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers. But you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.